Chapter 24 of Fantomas by Marcella Lane and Pierre Suvestra. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Alan Winteroud. Fantomas by Marcella Lane and Pierre Suvestra. Translated by Cranston Metcalf. Chapter 24 Under Lock and Key. After the preliminary examination as to his identity and so on, Gurn had been transferred to the Santé prison. At first the prisoner seemed to have terrible difficulty in accustoming himself to the rigors of confinement. He suffered from alternate paroxysms of rage and despair, but by sheer strength of character he fought these down. As a prisoner on remand, he was entitled to the privilege of a separate cell. Also, during the first forty-eight hours, he had been able to have his meals sent in from outside. Since then, however, his money had given out, and he was obliged to content himself with the ordinary prison dietary. But Gurn was not fastidious. This man whom Lady Beltham had singled out or accepted as her lover had often given proofs of an education and an intelligence above the average, yet now he appeared quite at ease in the atmosphere of a prison. Gurn was walking quickly and alone round the exercise yard, when a breathless voice sounded in his ear. "'God, Gurn, you know how to march.' I was going to join you for a bit, but I could not keep up with you. Gurn turned and saw old Siegenthal, the warder in charge of his division, in whose custody he was particularly placed. My word, the old fellow panted. Anybody could tell you had been in the infantry. Well, so have I, though that wasn't yesterday, nor yet the day before. But we never marched as fast as you do. We made a fine march once, though, at St. Privat. Out of pity for the decent old fellow, Gurn slackened his pace. He had heard the story of the Battle of St. Privat a dozen times already, but he was quite willing to let Siegenthal tell it again. The warder, however, wandered to another point. By the way, I heard you were promoted sergeant out in the Transvaal. Is that so? And as Gurn nodded assent, he went on. I never rose above the rank of corporal, but at any rate I have always led an honest life. A sudden compassion for his prisoner seized the old man, and he laid a kindly hand on Gurn's shoulder. Is it really possible that an old soldier like you, who seemed to be such a steady, serious kind of man, can have committed such a crime? Gurn dropped his eyes and did not reply. I suppose there was a woman at the bottom of it, Siegenthal said tentatively. You acted on impulse, in a fit of jealousy, eh? No. Gurn answered with sudden bluntness. I may as well own up that I did it in anger, because I wanted money, for the sake of robbery. I'm sorry, said the old warder simply. You must have been desperately hard up. No, I wasn't. Siegenthal stared at his prisoner. The man must be utterly callous to talk like that, he thought. Then a clock struck, and the warder gave a curt order. Time, Gurn, we must go back and he conducted the unresisting prisoner up the three flights of stairs that led to the division in which his cell was. By the way, he remarked as they went, I forgot to tell you that you and I have got to part. Oh, said Gurn, am I to be transferred to another prison? No, it is I who am going. Just fancy, I have been appointed head warder at Poissy. I go on leave tonight and take up my new post in a week. Both halted before the door of cell number 127. In with you, said Siegenthal, and when Gurn had obeyed, he turned to go. 
Then he wheeled round again quickly and put out his hand hurriedly as if half afraid of being seen. Put it there, Gurn, he said. No doubt you are a murderer, and as you have confessed yourself a thief, but I can't forget that if you had kept straight, you were the sergeant, and I should have to obey you. I'm sorry for you. Gurn was touched and murmured a word of thanks. That's all right, that's all right, Siegenthal muttered, not attempting to hide his emotion. Let us hope that everything will turn out well. And he left Gurn alone in the cell to his meditations. Twice, Gurn reflected, relying on the sympathy which he knew he had evoked in the old warder's heart, despite the number of criminals who had passed through his hands, he had been on the point of broaching a serious and delicate matter to him. But he had not actually spoken, being deterred by some undefinable scruple, as well as half-suspecting that his application would be made in vain. And now he was glad he had been so cautious, for even if the warder had been amenable, his approaching removal to another prison would have prevented the idea from coming to fruition. A sing-song voice echoed in the corridor. Number 127, you are wanted in the barrister's room, get ready. And the next minute the door of the cell was thrown open, and a cheery-looking warder, with a strong Gascon accent, appeared. Gurn had noticed him before. He was the second warder in this division, a man named Nibet, and no doubt he would be promoted to Siegenthal's place when the chief warder left. Nibet looked curiously at Gurn, a certain sympathy in his quick brown eyes. Ready, Gurn? Gurn growled an answer and pulled on his coat again. His counsel was Maitre Barbaro, one of the foremost criminal barristers of the day. Gurn had thought it prudent to retain him for his defense, most especially as it would cost him nothing personally. But he had no particular desire to talk to him now. He had already told him everything he intended to tell him, and he had no intention of allowing the case to be boomed as a sensation. Quite the reverse, indeed. In his opinion, the flatter the case fell, the better it would be for his interests, though no doubt Maitre Barbaro would not be of the same way of thinking. But he said nothing, and merely walked in front of Nibet along the corridor toward the barrister's room, the way to which he was already familiar with. On the way, they passed some masons who were at work in the prison, and these men stopped to watch him pass, but contrary to Gurn's apprehensions, they did not seem to recognize him. He hoped it meant that the murder was already ceasing to be a nine-days wonder for the public at large. Nibet pushed Gurn into the barrister's room, saying respectfully to the person in it already, You have only to ring, sir, when you have finished, and then withdrew, leaving Gurn in the presence not of his counsel, as he had expected, but of that personage's assistant, a young licentiate in law named Roger de Saris, who was also a most incredible dandy. Roger de Saris greeted Gurn with an engaging smile and advanced as if to shake hands with him but suddenly wondering whether that action might not suggest undue familiarity, he raised his hand to his own head instead and scratched it. The young fellow was still younger in his business, and did not rightly know whether it was etiquette for a barrister, or even a barrister's junior, to shake hands with a prisoner who was implicated in a notorious murder. Gurn felt inclined to laugh, and on the whole was glad that it was the junior whom he had to see. The futile verbosity of this very young licentiate might possibly be amusing. Maitre Roger de Serres began with civil apologies. You will excuse me if I only stay for a few minutes, but I am most frightfully busy. Besides, two ladies are waiting for me outside of my carriage. 
I may say confidentially that they are actresses, old friends of mine, and just fancy, they are most frightfully anxious to see you. That's what it means to be famous, Monsieur Gurn, eh? What? Gurn nodded, not feeling unduly flattered. Roger de Serres continued. Just to please them, I have made any number of applications to the governor of the prison, but there was nothing doing, my dear chap. That beast of a magistrate, Fusilier, insists on your being kept in absolute seclusion. But nonetheless, I've got some news for you. I know heaps. Why, my friends at the law courts call me the peripatetic paragraph. Not bad, eh, what? Gurn smiled, and Roger de Serres was encouraged. It's given me no end of a boom, my leader acting for you, and my being able to come and see you whenever I like. Everybody asks me how you are, and what you are like, and what you say, and what you think. You can congratulate yourself on having caused a sensation in Paris. Gurn began to be irritated by all this chatter. I must confess I'm not the least interested in what people are saying about me. Is there anything new in my case? Absolutely nothing that I am aware of, Roger de Serres replied serenely, without stopping to think whether there was or not. I say, Lady Beltham, yes, said Gurn. Well, I know her very well, you know. I go out a frightful lot, and I have often met her, a charming woman, Lady Beltham. Gurn really did not know how to treat the idiot. Never one to suffer fools gladly, he grew irritable and would almost certainly have said something that would have put the garrulous young bungler in his place, had not the latter suddenly remembered something, just as he was on the point of getting up to go. Oh, by the way, he said with a laugh, I was nearly forgetting the most important thing of all. Just fancy that beast Juve, the marvelous detective whom the newspapers rave about, went to your place yesterday afternoon to make another official search. Alone? inquired Gurn, much interested. Quite alone. Now what do you suppose he found? The place had been ransacked dozens of times, you know. Of course, I mean something sensational in the way of a find. I bet you a thousand... I never bet, Gurn snapped. Tell me at once what it was. The young fellow was proud of having caught the attention of his leader's notorious client, if only for a moment. He paused and wagged his head, weighing each word to give them greater emphasis. He found an ordnance map in your bookcase, my dear chap, an ordnance map with a bit torn out of it. Oh, and what then, said Gurn, a frown upon his face. The young barrister did not notice the expression on the murderer's countenance. Well, then it appears that Juve thought it was very important. Between you and me, my opinion is that Juve tries to be frightfully clever and succeeds in looking a fool. How, I ask you, can the discovery of that map affect your case or influence the decision of the jury? By the way, there is no need for you to worry about the result. I have had a frightful lot of experience in criminal cases, and so be assured that you are all right. Extenuating circumstances, you know. But, oh, yes, there is one thing more I wanted to tell you. A fresh witness is going to be called at the examination. Let me see, what was his name? Dolon, that's it. The steward Dolon. I don't understand, said Gurn. His head was bent and his eyes cast down. A glimmer of light dawned in the young licentiate's brain. Wait, there is some connection, he said. The steward Dolon is in the employment of a lady who calls herself the Baron de Vibray, and the Baron de Vibray is a guardian to the young lady who is staying with Lady Beltham the day. 
or rather the night when you, you, well, you know. And that young lady, Mademoiselle Thérèse Avernois, was placed with Lady Beltham by Monsieur Etienne Rambert. And Monsieur Etienne Rambert is the father of the young man who murdered the Marquise de Langrune last year. I tell you all these things without attempting to draw any deductions from them. For, for my own part, I haven't the least idea why the steward Dolon has been summoned in our case at all. Nor have I, said Gurn, and the frown on his brow was deeper. Roger de Saris hunted all round the little room for his gloves and found them in his pocket. Well, my dear chap, I must leave you. We have been chatting for a whole half hour, and those ladies are still waiting for me. What on earth will they say to me? He was about to ring for the warder when Gurn abruptly stayed him. Tell me, he said with a sudden air of interest, when is that man coming? What's his name? Dolon? The young barrister was on the point of saying he did not know, when a brilliant recollection came into his mind. Gad, how frightfully stupid I am! Why, I have a copy of the telegram he sent to the magistrate in my portfolio here now. He opened the portfolio and picked out a sheet of blue paper. Here it is. Gurn took it from him and read, We'll leave Verrières tomorrow evening by 7.20 train, arriving Paris 5 a.m. Gurn appeared to be sufficiently edified. At all events, he paid no attention to the rest of the message. Lord Beltham's murderer handed the document back to the barrister without a word. A few minutes later, Maitre Roger de Serres had joined his lady friends, and the prisoner was once more in his cell. End of chapter 24 Recording by Alan Winteroud BoomCoach.blogspot.com